Father, as I think about those words, that you are the God of Jacob, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Moses, and to realize that if we are truly born again and been transformed by the blood of Christ, we can say that you are our God, and Lord, that is significant. It is also significant to sing about you reigning, and Lord, I confess that there are so many times that my view of you is too small. And that when my view of you is too small, that the circumstances that you ordain to be a part of my life can be overwhelming. They can be crippling. Father, this morning I ask very desperately that your spirit would pour out on the message that I'm about to preach. This is a difficult topic. And Lord, you know that in our own lives as a family that it is been brought to our attention because of difficult circumstances. And Lord, I pray that this morning that we would have ears to hear, that our hearts would be open to receive the truths of your word, and that it would be used not to just give us more information, but to transform our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Just four and a half weeks ago, my wife and I got some very exciting and very Scary news. It was scary in that we had come to a conclusion that we were content with where we were as a family. That we were starting to talk about potty training Macy and starting to realize about the freedom that that would create in our lives. And so to think about having another child was a little overwhelming and scary. And yet we found out about four and a half weeks ago that Sally and I were expecting, expecting our fourth child. Uh, and that's, that's the exciting part, right? Because the exciting part was overwhelming. Thinking about all of the things that we would enjoy, the, the sights, the smells, the good smells, right? And you know, I'm not an overly sensitive guy, I don't think. I'm not the person that cries at a drop of a hat. But I am the kind of guy that will look at a sonogram and will be overwhelmed with emotion. And so two and a half weeks ago, we went in and we had our sonogram and it confirmed what we thought. And that was that we were expecting our fourth child. And so we saw this little beam on on the sonogram and we got to hear a heartbeat. Let me tell you guys, I was smitten. And so the next few days, the next couple weeks were involved with the emotions of how would we tell people, how would we tell the grandparents, trying to get creative about that because by the time you get to your fourth, you have to get a little creative. Thought about how we would tell our small group, how we would tell our our church family, how we would tell our girls. And so it came as a shock last Sunday when we were cleaning up on my daughter's birthday, to have my wife come to me with tears and to say something's wrong. And you know, the next couple days were filled with the emotions of, this can't be, this is, there's an explanation for this, that this isn't really happening. Because you know, you can look at life and you realize that life is a miracle and it's a gift. And I, I don't believe that Sally and I take that for granted. 
But you just kind of expect that this is the fourth and the other three were healthy. And you would expect that everything would just happen the same way. But it didn't. And as we went in Monday and we got that sonogram, it confirmed our fears and that was that our baby had died. And you know, as the doctor came in, he was very professional, very gentle with how he communicated to us. And he told us he was sorry. And we appreciated that. And I responded to him by saying, you know what, we, we appreciate that, but the Lord is in control. And he said something to the effect of, well, yes, but you know, your baby's nature, just like everybody else. And, and, that, and that explanation kind of trailed off, as it often does when somebody tries to explain through logical and scientific terms something that's spiritual. You know, as we reflected on the reality that we were presented with, the truth hit me like a freight train. And that truth has been our strength over the last week. And yes, we've been sad, as you can tell. Still sad. And yes, we've had to think about, okay, how do we tell the people that we've already told we're pregnant? How do we tell the grandparents? How do we tell our girls? Should we tell our girls? But the truth that hit me like a freight train is this. But God is sovereign. You know, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. You know, in the two years that I've been a pastor here at Harvest, the number one topic that has brought about the most questions, that has brought about the most controversy, is the topic of God's sovereignty. You know, people will come to me and they'll say, Okay, Jeff, now, you're not a Calvinist, are you? They'll say, you don't believe in predestination. You're not one of those election people, are you? And usually when they ask that question, they're looking for a yes or no. Most people want a yes or no. Why? Because they have their minds already made up. And so my answer to that question will determine whether or not they come to our church again. But then there's some people who are genuinely working through the topic. They're genuinely processing through it. And their question goes a little something like this. What does it matter? What does it matter? And you know, as I've experienced the loss of a baby, as I've experienced losing two jobs, as I've experienced friends and family who have had life-altering sicknesses, as I've experienced death of friends that has occurred way before it should have, in my mind, and everything else that has taken place over the 37 years of my reality, the topic of God's sovereignty is what has sustained me. And if God is not completely sovereign, if there's something that is out of His control, if He's in some way limited, these circumstances would be debilitating. But they're not. This morning I'm going to preach a message that is different than any other message I've ever preached and I may never preach a message like this again. We are going to be walking through Scripture. My wife looked at my, my note cards and she said that is a ton of Scripture. And it is. 
This is my goal, friends. I have two goals. Number one is that we will be able to take these passages, that you will write them down, that you will underline them in your scriptures, and that they will be weaved together to paint a clear picture biblically of what God's sovereignty looks like. But then the second purpose is that that tapestry that this creates will serve as a reference, as a resource, as a monument etched in absolute certainty so that in your lives, like Sally's in my life, this will be used as a strength and as an encouragement. Because guess what? These circumstances will happen for the rest of our lives. If you think that from now on your life is going to be comfortable and you're never going to have bombs dropped on you like this, you've got another thing coming. And so my prayer is that God's sovereignty will serve as a tremendous tool and resource to you as it has for Sally and me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, raise your hands because I would invite you this morning especially to have a Bible in your hands. Now, I don't like doing this, but I've done this this morning so that you can follow along. I'll have the passages on the PowerPoint up here so that you can follow along if you kind of get lost, and that's okay. The first passage I want us to turn to is Job chapter 12. And as you're doing so, I'm going to answer the question, what does sovereignty look like biblically? What does sovereignty look like biblically? Job chapter 12, and I want to start by looking at verse 10. As Job has experienced suffering and he's lost just about everything in life that you can lose except for a wife, and even that wife, we would argue that it would have possibly been nice for Job to lose. I'm just kidding. Job 12 and verse 10, Job responds to his calamity and he says this, In his, God's hand, is the life of every thing, living thing and the breath of all mankind. He says in verses 14 and 15, If God tears down, none can rebuild. If He shuts a man in, none can open. If He withholds the waters, they dry up. If He sends them out, they overwhelm the land. Verse 23 says, He makes nations great and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Now why do I start here? Because this covers the expanse of God's sovereignty. Every human being, every living creature is held in the hands of our sovereign God. And he illustrates that by talking about creation. If God sends water, there will be water. If He withholds water, there will be no water. And He raises up nations and He tears them down. God is completely sovereign. And this morning what I'm inviting you to do is write these verses down. Underline them because what I'm doing is reading Scripture. That's all I'm primarily doing here in this first half. Turn over to Job chapter 14 and verse 5. This is staggering. Job says, Since man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You guys realize that God has ordained how many days we will live. And there is nothing that we can do to change that. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Isn't that amazing? Even considering our baby that died. In fact, we let our girl's name, we call him him. 
They named him Wilbur Munchkin. And so Wilbur Munchkin never was born. We never got to see his head and his arms and his legs. And yet the psalmist says that you saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of the days that were formed when, it yet, when as yet there was none of them. This is the sovereign God that we serve. Turn over to Job chapter 36. Verse 32 is fascinating, especially as we head into the spring storm season. Elihu is extolling God's majesty as he's responding to Job. And Elihu says this in verse 32, He, God, covers His hands with the lightning and commands the lightning to strike its mark. Isn't that fascinating? God commands where lightning will hit. This is the sovereign God that we serve. Turn over to Exodus and we'll start marching through the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11. Yahweh says, and then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Hear that again. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It doesn't say who's aware that man is mute and blind and seeing. Who makes him this way? And Yahweh responds, is it not I, the Lord? You know, when we consider these circumstances in our lives, when we consider the things in our lives that seem to be unfair, I find great comfort in a passage like this. You know, I hear sometimes that people that are teaching about parenting will say that kids really want structure. I mean, how many times do we see kids resist parents when they bring down laws and rules? And yet in their hearts of hearts, if we were able to peel it back far enough, we would realize that kids actually want authority and structure. And I believe that that's the way creation is. If we were really able to peel our lives back to the root of our heart, we want a God like this. Turn over to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14 is a, the story of Samson. Samson had taken a Nazarite vow that meant that as a Jew, he was supposed to have an escalated standard in his life. An escalated standard of being set apart and being holy to the Lord. And yet if you studied the story of Samson, he was constantly led by his desires and his lusts. And it says at the end of verse 3 that he says to his parents, I've seen this Philistine woman. This is the arch enemy of Israel. And he says, get her for me. For she is right in my eyes. This is a poor sense of judgment that Samson has. And yet look what it says in verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. This foolish decision of Samson, this being led after his own desires and emotions was actually from the Lord. Why? For the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 
the plot thickens when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 2 as we have the curtain pulled back a little bit more as to who our sovereign God truly is. Yes, He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. And we experience that every moment. In fact, if you can take a breath right now, you've experienced God's grace. And yet we also see this other side of God that sometimes makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 25, it says, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they, these are Eli's sons, would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. You see, Eli's sons had been sinning constantly. They were unrepentant. And God came to a point where He said, I'm done. It's my will that you're put to death. And so even when it was presented to them, the truth of what should cause them to repent, they didn't. Why? Because it was God's will that they would be put to death. 2 Samuel chapter 17 is the next passage I want us to evaluate. 2 Samuel chapter 17 is the story of Absalom, David's son, who was conspiring against David, against the king, his own son. And there was a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's personal counselor, and he had gone turncoat. He actually became Absalom's counselor. And Ahithophel had given Wise counsel to Absalom, but look at how Absalom responds in verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. How many of us stop and view God this way? You see, Ahithophel had given wise counsel. Ahithophel was right. And yet God ordained that Absalom would not hear that. Why? Because it was God's will that he would bring harm upon Absalom. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon has died. His son Rehoboam is about to take the throne. And the people come to Rehoboam. And they say, your father was oppressive. Give us a little slack. If you give us a little slack, we'll serve you. And so Rehoboam went back to the drawing room. And he asked the elders and he said, what should I do? And the elders said, yes, give them grace. And what does he do? He goes to his buddies And they say, no, oppress them more. So Rehoboam in verse 15 says, So the king did not listen to the people. Why? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that God might fulfill His word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. You see, God had prophesied that Israel would be divided. And so Rehoboam heard the truth. He knew what he needed to do, but what? God ordained that he would not listen. You see, this is the God that we serve. 
This is the God that orchestrates all things according to His sovereign will. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. In verse 1. This is one of my favorite chapters of all of Scripture. Verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man. You see, this is the tension, isn't it? Because some of us may draw a conclusion that if God is sovereign, what does it matter? What does it matter whether I get up in the morning? What does it matter whether I pray? And we'll drill down into that in just a few minutes. But the the author of this proverb, Solomon, says that the plans of the heart do belong to a man. We do have to plan. But look at this truth. It says, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You see, we have to hold our plans loosely. In fact, I prayed that in our planning room this morning. A lot of planning goes into a worship service. You should see how Jeff prepares the worship band. They don't just fly by the seat of their pants. I take a lot of time preparing the messages. We, we intentionally plan these things. But at the end of the day, once we stand up here, it's the Lord's doing. Look at verse 4. It says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Most of us would agree with that. But look at this. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Then look at verse 33. It says, The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. What was the lot back in those ancient days? What they would do is they would take a lot, like a die, and almost like a magic eight ball that we have today. They would ask a question and then they would roll the die. And what it's saying is that even in that minute detail, how that die would face up is from the Lord. He ordains that. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. It says, The king's heart. Back in those days, the king was supreme. There was one human being that could say a decree and it would be followed completely. There was one type of person who was absolute in their authority and in the ancient days, that was the king. And it says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord and the Lord will turn it wherever He will. Now translate that to what we experience today. Who are people in our lives that are authority? Our bosses? In in politics? We have authorities? And there is no one that has more authority but that God turns their hearts like streams of water. Let that be an encouragement to you when you get called into the office and you lose your job. Let that be an encouragement to you when the Congress makes a law that we disagree with is that this is not happening by chance. When we get freaked out with the developments in the world and the world's leaders, the God that we serve is in the heavens and He laughs. Because there's no decisions that are made in this life but that they are ordained by the sovereign hand of God. That is the God that we serve. Turn over to Isaiah 45. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7. 
tell you, if you want to see a picture of God in a way that you may not be used to, read the prophets. I've been going through the major prophets and then now into the minor prophets and it is amazing to me to read of how they picture God. And there is verse after verse, passage after passage that confronts me with my little view of God. Look at verse 7. This is God speaking. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. All of us would agree with that. But look at the last part of that. And create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You see, everything happens because of the creative will of God. If there's anything that starts other than the creative will of God, then God is limited. If we say that God is omnipotent, what does that mean? That it means He's all-powerful. If we say that God is sovereign, what does that mean? That means that He reigns. And so if there's anything in this life that we say that doesn't have its origin from God's hands, then we're limiting God, then He's not sovereign. Then He doesn't reign. You see, it says that the well-being, the good, and the calamity, the bad, are created by God. Now, what is the bad? Why can the bad happen? I would encourage you to write these things down. As a Christian, you can evaluate the bad things in your life and you can answer them by saying one of three reasons, one of three causes is why this is happening. Either number one, it's because of sin. You know, I think we skip this step sometimes. When there's something bad that happens in our lives, it could be because of sin. Then second of all, it could be because of, by their means, these bad things make us, are going to make us more like Christ. How many of you have ever experienced something and it's bad, and you look at that and say, man, this is growing me and my patience. Well, this is growing me in my ability to be gentle. This is growing me in my humility. Sometimes God allows bad things and ordains bad things so that we can grow in these areas. I've grown in the last week. I truly have. You know, there's, there's areas of my life that I could do better in my relationship with my wife. There's times when I just need to shut up and love my wife. And I've had to realize that in the last week. Sometimes God ordains these things to make us more conformed to the image of His Son. But then third, sometimes they happen because of reasons God cannot explain to me. Turn over to Amos. This is the last verse we'll look at in the Old Testament. The book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 6. You see, Amos had just been giving analogies. Verse 4 says, Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? These are logical comparisons. If we see something, there's a cause to it. All of these, though, were positive. And the listeners to Amos were nodding their heads in agreement. In verse 6 it says, is a trumpet blown in a city. What was a trumpet? A trumpet was like our modern day tornado sirens. 
This means a disaster. Something bad is happening. Does a trumpet blown, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Yes. Logical comparison. But then look at this. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? You see, this would have gone against the common belief of the Jews in those days. See, the Jews believed that the only thing that God could do was something that was good. God would never bring about something that was bad. And so if they agreed with what Amos said here, they would be going against their beliefs. And yet if they disagreed, they had to admit that God is not sovereign. Amos says here, no, God controls everything that happens. There are so many other passages that are at the cutting room floor of my study. You can read the entire book of Daniel. That's one of my favorite books. And you can see that God gave skills to Daniel. Daniel wasn't just born as like this, this A-plus guy. God gave him skills. He gave him insight. You can read in, in Daniel that Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, was raised up. God gave the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. It goes on and on and on. But it's not just the Old Testament that tells us that God is sovereign. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You see, friends, these are verses that provide great confidence when we experience difficult circumstances in life because they paint a picture of who God is Matthew chapter 5, the second part of verse 45 says, that the Father makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, this is the common grace of our Father. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. In verse 29, another illustration of how God is sovereign in creation. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? What is he saying here? That means that these are basically worthless creatures in the economy of Israel. And not one of them, not one of those sparrows will fall to the ground apart from the Father ordaining it. And then verse 30 says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. What is he saying? That a loss of a single piece of hair is from the hand of God just as much as the fall of a sparrow. But you know what he also is saying here is that the text is not promising that no hair will fall. I'm a living example of that. This is the divine, sovereign God that we serve. You know what, guys? You can look in the mirror and you cannot be grateful for what you see staring back at you. You know, I joke about it sometimes, but I have to tell you honestly, I struggle sometimes with my baldness. I would like to have action figure hair. Just being transparent with you. But obviously I don't. And we have to remember that God has divinely and sovereignly created us the way that He's so pleased. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Verse 23, not only is God sovereign with creation, and in nature. 
but he's sovereign in the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, the plan of Jesus being crucified was foreordained by the Father. It wasn't just that He looked forward to the corridors of time and said, oh man, this is going to happen, so I'm aware of that. Let's make sure everything's in place to make sure it happens. This was God's plan. He predetermined it to the glory of His great name. Look over to Acts chapter 4 and verse 28. Verse 27 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28, To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You know, one of the people that played a significant role in that predestined plan was Judas, wasn't it? And I think sometimes I can think about a theology like this and say, wait a minute, well, how does God find fault in anyone? How could Judas be held accountable for something that God predestined to take place? You can write down Mark chapter 14, verse 21, where Christ says, woe to Judas. It would have been better for Judas not to have been born. Now why does he say that? Because Judas was completely responsible for his actions. Yet in God's divine sovereignty, He ordained that through the sin of Judas, through the sin of Herod, through the sin of those who crucified Jesus Christ, He would accomplish His will. Don't ever stop to conclude that we are not responsible for our sin. Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh is responsible for his sin. God's sovereignty is never an excuse for us with our sin. Two more passages in the New Testament. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Paul is speaking in verse 15 and he says, But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace. That smacks of Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5 where Jeremiah says that before you formed me, the Lord says this, before I formed you, Jeremiah, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. And not only did I know you, I appointed you to be my prophet. Before Jeremiah was even showing up in a sonogram, before Paul was even showing up in a sonogram, God set them apart. What an amazing picture into God's sovereignty. But then the last book of the Bible, Revelation, gives us one last glimpse into the sovereignty of God. Look at Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17. 
Here the prophecy has just been told that there will be ten horns or ten rulers. There will be ten authorities in the future who will partner with the beast. And it says in verse 17, For God has put into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing, them, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. You see, they will do what God has put in their heart to do. And that will continue until the end of time. What's interesting, guys, is that we've marched through Scripture and I've not even touched on election or predestination for salvation. This is simply who God is. This is the sovereign God that we worship that ordains and orchestrates all events, both that we would agree that are good, as well as those things like losing a baby that we would say are not good. But it begs the question, what do we do with this, right? Practically speaking, what do we do with this? And that's number two. What does it look like practically? What does it look like practically? I take these six points from Millard, Millard Erickson's book, Christian Theology, which has provided a great source of strength and encouragement to me over the last week. First of all, number one, God's sovereign activity is universal. God's sovereign activity is universal. Do you realize that there are no limits as to what or whom God will use to accomplish His purposes? You can write down Isaiah chapter 44 through 45. There's a man named Cyrus, pagan king. And yet in that prophecy, God refers to him as His anointed. He will be raised up for the specific purpose of accomplishing God's will. Let this be an encouragement to us, guys, that especially as we go into the political season of the presidential campaign. God is raising up whoever, whoever will be elected in November. Do you realize that? The president that we have right now is ordained by God. What an encouragement that is. That we know that everything's under God's control. And even though we may not understand the way things have played out, this is according to God's great sovereign plan. You see, the Christian armed with this theology will be alert to the fact that there are no unexpected, no accidents, no unplanned circumstances. Life is pregnant with divinely said possibilities and this should give the Christian a sense of expectation and excitement. How many of you wake up some morning and you have a plan for the day when you lay your head on the pillow say, that was not what I had planned. Almost every day for me is like that. But this should cause me to wake up in the morning not with fear, but with great excitement because God is sovereignly orchestrating my steps. God's sovereign activity is universal. Number two, God's providence does not extend merely to His own people. We've already touched on this. God sends His reign today on the just and on the unjust. Number three, God is good in His sovereignty. 
God is good in His sovereignty. He wakes all, works all things together for the good, sometimes to directly bring about good, sometimes countering efforts of evil human beings toward good. But the thing we have to understand before we can run on to number four is this, that good does not always equal pleasant and comfortable to us. In fact, I talk about this, but let's turn over there to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is a favorite verse of Christians. People will say this at funerals. They'll say this when people lose jobs. Don't worry, all things work together for good. You're going to have an even better job. But we have to let Scripture define what good means. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, this is very important, guys. What follows is only for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, what is His purpose? What is the good that God is working all things together for? Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, that is the good. That is the purpose. It's conforming us to the image of Christ. Get this, suffering and discipline are included in that. That God is good and His sovereignty should produce a confidence in the ultimate outcome of all the events of life. You see, God is not only in control but He's also directing matters according to the goodness and graciousness of His character. We have to be careful about the vocabulary that we use of God. God is directing all things according to His good character. And that should be a confidence builder to us. That when we don't understand why a baby dies, when we don't understand why we've been given cancer, when we don't understand why a friend of ours dies in their 30s, We can rest in the good character of God. Number four, God is personally concerned about those who are His. Turn over to John chapter 10, or you can just listen. Sometimes we can talk about God's sovereignty and conclude that He's a cosmic killjoy. But there's a shepherd side of God. John chapter 10 and verse 3 says, To him the gatekeeper opens, this is the believer, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You see, this assures us that His personal relationship with us as His sheep is of utmost importance to Him. You see, He sovereignly loves us and He cares for us. And so in the midst of something tragic and sad, we know that He's still our Good Shepherd. And we may not see at this side of the tunnel, we may not even see at this side of eternity, why something happens, but we know that it's because He cares for us. And He loves us. He knows each one of us, and each one of us matters to Him. 
Number five, our activity and God's activity are not mutually exclusive. This is very important. You see, we have no excuse to be indifferent or to resign that it doesn't matter what we do just because God is sovereign. Why? Because God uses human actions to accomplish His purpose. We know with great certainty that God accomplishes His planned end, but that does not excuse us for diligently doing what we're supposed to do. This plays itself out in evangelism. This plays itself out with prayer. You see, God accomplishes His planned end, but in doing so, He employs means, human actions, to bring about those ends. It reminds me of a a soldier sitting on the beach, laying on the beach, having been wounded, that is in desperate need of medical attention. You see, God's divine sovereign plan for that soldier may be that that person is healed, but He also orchestrates that the medic will come and accomplish that. What a great lesson that is for us when it comes to prayer. Yes, God will accomplish His plan, but why do we pray? Because God sovereignly ordains that our prayers will accomplish that. Just because God is sovereign does not excuse us for doing our responsibility. Then the last one, number six, is this. This summarizes everything. God is completely sovereign. Hopefully that means a little bit different to you than it did when you walked in. But see, He alone determines His plan and then get this, and knows the significance of each action. He alone determines His plan and He alone knows the significance of each action. It's not necessary for us to know where He's leading. That's a tough one, isn't it? I think sometimes like Gideon, we want to pray that God, if you want me to do X, then you need to do A to show me. Remember the story of Gideon? Gideon was called to lead Israel and it was overwhelming to him. And he's like, okay, wait just a minute, Lord. I'm going to put this fleece out here. And if it's wet and the ground is dry, then I know that you're in this. So God graciously does it. What does Gideon do? Okay, wait, i got to ask again. Make it dry this time and make the ground wet. You see, that's not what God wants us to do. It's not if X, then A. It's do X. See, when we start making promises and demands of God like that, we fail to take into account the complexity of the universe and the large numbers of persons whom God must be concerned about. That was a great lesson. Sometimes we can be so wrapped up in our own lives. Sometimes we can be so wrapped up on what we want, we don't realize of how this will affect others. God knows that intimately. What we need to do when things are going on in our lives is to ask God to illumine us if He so wishes as to the significance of His work. You see, we know everything has a purpose, but we must not assume the meaning will be obvious. Turn over to one last verse. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11.
Paul writes, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Let me read that again. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. What is left out with all things? It's all things. And He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So then, we can have confidence in God's unchanging character. Just as He called Abraham out of Ur. Just as He gave insight to Daniel. Just as He brought about calamity on Israel. His character stands. That's the same God who is orchestrating the events of our lives. Friends, no accidents occur. There's no such thing as chance. It's all designed and orchestrated by the God of the universe. I like to refer to Him as this. The great composer and conductor of the universe. What a great word picture. He is orchestrating every event of this entire world, throughout all history, throughout all future history, according to the great counsel of His will. Again, practically speaking, if something bad happens in your life, the loss of a job, the, loss, the cancer, the loss of a baby, remember Isaiah 45, verse 7. God brings about both the good as well as the bad. If there's something bad in your life, is there sin? If there is, repent. Turn from it. Turn to Christ. Be willing to do anything that's necessary. Do you realize that that's included with repentance? Repentance isn't just something where we say, yep, I agree that it's wrong. Sweep it under the rug. Let's move forward. Repentance is I'm willing to do anything. Tell anyone. Do whatever's necessary to turn from that sin. And until you get to a point, God may continue to orchestrate bad things in your life until you get, it gets through your thick skull. But then also, too, realize that sometimes bad things happen to conform us to the image of Christ. Don't resist Him. Learn from it and be conformed. And then don't forget that if there's an unrevealed purpose, trust in the sovereign hand of our God. But you know, the key point to all of this is that all things only work together for good to those who love God. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, this doesn't apply to you. All you get is the common grace. You get to walk out there and be rained upon. You get to have the sun shine upon you. You get common grace, but that's all you get. You don't have the shepherd orchestrating the events of your life in the intimate way that you would if He was your Father. That can happen though today if you admit your sin. If you admit that you can't do anything on your own to acquire salvation. If you believe that what Jesus Christ did is sufficient for your salvation. If you confess your sins and commit your life to Him, now you can enter into that intimate relationship. I want you to bow your heads, guys. You know, there may be some of you that are holding on to bitterness because there's something in your life that's happened that we all would agree seems to be unfair. Something in your life that's happened that's bad, that's caused you to be angry at God. And what you've done is you've used that as an excuse to live a lifestyle of sin. 
You've used that as an excuse to have bad thoughts toward other people. You've used that as an excuse to not forgive another person. You need to confess that to Him. There will be people up front after the service. There will be people that would be willing to take you to the side room, that can go to a private place, that can walk through those events with you and pray for you and help you consider how biblically you can address them. You see, bad things happen in life. It's true. Bad things are hard. Tears are allowed. That's not a sin to cry. It's not a sin to be sorrowful over these things. But let's reflect on the truth from God's Word. My prayer is that you, that I, that Sally, will be able to experience bad things in our lives and will be able to say the same thing that Job said. In Job 1.21, the Lord gives and the Lord sovereignly takes away. What is our response? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we are grateful for Your character. We are grateful that that includes divine sovereignty. We are thankful that that means that there is nothing that doesn't orchestrate itself and have its origin from Your hands. Father, I pray that this morning that would not be something that we resist, but that we would embrace and that it would serve the purpose of causing us to see in a much greater picture who You truly are, that when we sing, You reign, we will be calling that what it biblically is. Father, this morning a difficult subject was broached, but also a difficult illustration in my own life. And Lord, I know there are people that have experienced difficult situations. Father, I pray that this morning as we sing, Blessed be Your name, that we would reflect on the truths of Your Word, that if there's anything that in our lives we need to deal with, that we would deal with it. That we would not leave here sweeping things under the rug. Father, I ask this, and ask that You bless the remainder of our time in Christ's name.